Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. The diagnosis of pulmonary embolism in the ED is often a challenge. Currently, we all try our best to balance our clinical suspicions, scoring criteria, and judicious testing. But striking a balance of finding clinically significant PE while avoiding overtesting is a difficult line to walk sometimes. It may be possible to safely rule out pulmonary embolism in patients with low pretest probability using a higher D-dimer threshold than is currently standard in the United States. The YEARS criteria, that's all caps Y-E-A-R-S, was recently evaluated in a multi-center study in the Netherlands, and the use of the year's criteria and a pretest probability adjusted D-dimer was associated with a 14% reduction in imaging, but was not associated with an increase in missed clinically significant PE. However, the year's approach has not until now been studied in an independent population in the United States. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Christopher Cabrell of Harvard Medical School, who's director of the Center for Vascular Emergencies in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's the lead author of a recent AEM article entitled, Multicenter Evaluation of the Year's Criteria in Emergency Department Patients Evaluated for Pulmonary Embolism. He and his colleagues investigated the performance of the year's criteria in an independent population, and he is here to talk about their findings. He's being interviewed today by Dr. John Thorndike, a PGY-4 at Brown Emergency Medicine. The full text of this article is available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Well, thanks very much, Dr. Cable, for being on the podcast and talking about your study. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So first off, could you tell us a little bit about what was done in the Netherlands and uh, what you wanted to do with that? Sure. Folks at the Leiden University Medical Center created a system for adjusting the D-dimer that they called the years criteria. The overarching idea here is to reduce the number of patients that we expose to imaging because they have a positive D-dimer. And we all know that D-dimers are notoriously nonspecific, so we get a lot of false positives. In the Netherlands, they said, if you can answer no to three criteria that they called the years criteria, but really were three of the Wells score questions, then you can use a D-dimer cutoff that is twice the normal cutoff and consider that negative. In other words, you can use a cutoff of 1,000 rather than a cutoff of 500. The three Wells score questions that they chose were, does the patient have signs or symptoms of DVT? Does the patient have hemoptysis? And is PE the most likely diagnosis? And again, if you say no to all three of those, then you are considered years negative and you can use a higher D-dimer cutoff as a negative test. What they found was using that approach, you could reduce the number of people who were referred to imaging by 14%, which is a pretty significant decrease in the number of imaging tests required. And fortunately, no clinically significant PEs were missed in follow-up. So what we did is we wanted to see if we could replicate that study in the United States, not only for the purposes of independent replication, but because there was actually a little uh, 
unusual approach in the Netherlands. Apparently, it's relatively common for a D-dimer to be sent straight from triage in the Netherlands. And it was therefore possible that the doctor who was determining whether PE was the most likely diagnosis had that D-dimer in front of them at the time. So not surprisingly, if you were trying to decide if a PE was the most likely diagnosis and you already knew that the D-dimer was negative, or conversely, you knew that it was very high, well, that might determine how you answered your year's question and whether or not you thought the D-dimer needed to be doubled or not. And that's a little bit unusual, and I thought that it was worth exploring that in an independent population to see if these criteria really worked. Okay, interesting. Do you know, how did they pick 500 and 1,000 for their D-dimer cutoff? Was that just an arbitrary number? Was that based on some kind of regression? So it wasn't necessarily, the cutoff of 1,000 wasn't necessarily derived from an ROC curve analysis, for example, Um, but it's not entirely without data. So for example, uh, several years ago, we did a study where we also looked to see if patients with a lower pretest probability of PE might be eligible for a higher D-dimer threshold. And in that study, we also just simply doubled the D-dimer standard threshold and said folks with a low pretest probability could be ruled out with a D-dimer of 1,000. I don't know if the year's criteria authors based their decision on that or if they came up with it on their own, um, but it, it's somewhat arbitrary, but also somewhat data-driven. And, and you're suggesting possibly that even just the alternative diagnosis criteria alone could be potentially used in the future? So yeah, so what we, what we found was that by far the most common year's criteria was that the clinician thought that PE was the most likely diagnosis or that alternative diagnoses were less likely than PE. And that was that was the case in about 75% of, of patients who were years positive. So we wondered because of that and also because of the fact that clinicians tend to incorporate the more objective well score questions like does the patient have signs or symptoms of DVT into their clinical gestalt anyway. So we thought that that alternative diagnosis question would probably be the one that was powering the year's criteria, much like it has been shown to power the well score. So we analyzed that separately and looked to see if when clinicians said that PE was not the most likely diagnosis, was that essentially the equivalent to a negative year score? And it turns out, in our data at least, that it was. So while using the standard approach of a single D-dimer cutoff of 500 resulted in two PEs that were quote-unquote missed in our study, using the year's criteria resulted in six PEs that were quote-unquote missed, and using the alternative diagnosis criteria resulted in exactly those same six PEs being missed. So while we were able to conclude that the year's criteria are valid, it does appear that a simpler approach that just bases the pretest probability assessment on the clinician's gestalt may also be valid. 
Okay, cool. And and do you have a sense on your data who those patients are who the clinician feels that there is a different diagnosis more likely? Like, are these people with wheezing on exam or people with a history of CHF or coming in with a weight gain? Or do you not have that kind of granular data? So unfortunately, we don't have specific or granular data to tell us whether it's a COPD patient or a CHF patient or an asthma patient where clinicians are inclined to put them into the PE unlikely category. We do know from previous research that the diagnosis that the clinicians are considering to be likely does vary quite a bit um, when they determine that a PE is not the most likely diagnosis. We also know from our study that the other questions of the years criteria are relatively unlikely to be positive. So for example, hemoptysis was only present in about 9% of patients who had a positive years criteria, and even fewer when you consider the population overall. So it's not surprising that hemoptysis doesn't play a huge role in driving positive years criteria because it's just not that common. So I've seen some literature before suggesting that it's not uncommon for us to miss people who come in with you know, signs and symptoms of COPD exacerbation and we miss their PE. Do you think that there's any danger in that with using the years criteria? So of course, there's always a risk that a patient who presents with signs or symptoms that suggest a diagnosis like COPD or CHF uh, could also have a PE or or may, uh, may be masquerading. And, and we know that PE is notoriously difficult to diagnose, and many of the symptoms that people present with are exactly the same symptoms that uh, people with other cardiopulmonary conditions present with. And in fact, we also know that many people with, with PE are asymptomatic, which makes it even that much more difficult. So yes, it is, um, it is always a challenge, and we should always be worried about the possibility of PE but on the other hand, we do have to be concerned about overtesting and exposing people to unnecessary ionizing radiation and cost. And I think it's therefore important to pursue studies like the YEARS study, where we hopefully reduce the number of imaging tests that are required without missing clinically significant PEs. Can you talk a little bit about your inclusion and exclusion criteria for this? Like who who got enrolled in this and who did you not want to enroll? We enrolled patients who were evaluated in the emergency department and received a diagnostic test for PE. If they received a D-dimer or they received imaging, they were eligible for enrollment. We did require that they had low to intermediate pretest probability for PE based on the well score. So a well score of six or less, uh, that was incorporated in order to make sure that we were focusing on a population who were eligible for D-dimer testing in the first place. So we typically don't use D-dimer tests for high pretest probability patients. So we focused on the low and intermediate group. We did have several inclusion criteria. Some of them were based on study requirements, like we excluded people who were unlikely to follow up, but we also excluded pregnant women uh, patients with renal insufficiency, um, and patients who were previously anticoagulated. Um, those exclusion criteria 
essentially mirror the exclusion criteria of the original year study. Why did you exclude people who were anticoagulated? The primary reason is that that's what was done in the years criteria study, um, and we wanted to mirror that. But also, there are data that suggest that patients who are already on anticoagulation may have different D-dimer results as a result of that. Uh, we published a study a while back that showed that being on warfarin made you less likely to have a positive D-dimer. Um, and also, obviously, being anticoagulated changes your uh, your likelihood of having PE. So we thought that it was best to uh, exclude those patients. Okay. And do you think, is this, is this the end all be all of PE studies? Are you, do you think that there's anything moving forward to do or what would you do? Yeah, I think, I think this is probably it. Uh, this is the end all be all of PE studies. I'm, <laughs> I'm probably going to retire tomorrow. Um, <laughs> no, I, if that was the case, I'd be out of a job. Uh, PE is, uh, still a very fertile area for research. There is a lot that we don't know. Um, and in particular, there's a lot that we don't know about the, the, the most appropriate way to do D-dimer testing. So I still think that this particular area has, uh, has some room for growth. Okay. And people have talked a lot about clinically significant PE. Do you think that we are considering longer term, uh, problems from PEs like, uh, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, or are we, are we too focused on like getting the initial diagnosis and anticoagulating them or lysing them? Should we be thinking a little bit more long-term than we are? Yeah, that's a really good question and a tricky problem. Uh, clinically significant PE for the purposes of a lot of studies means that a, P, a PE that we may have missed, but then doesn't go on to either kill the patient or cause them to come back with symptoms. And that is, is a bit of a tricky way to define a clinically significant PE. As you said, there's CTEF and there is now what we're calling a post-PE syndrome. We recently demonstrated that patients that have a PE diagnosis have a decrease in their physical function that's equivalent to about five years of aging. So I think it's important to make these diagnoses. And simply the fact that someone didn't either have a fatal PE during the follow-up period or a recurrent PE during the follow-up period may not be uh, the be-all, end-all of clinical significance. When we, we, we thought about this in our analysis, actually, and we were, we were curious to know whether the PEs that we might uh, miss applying the year's criteria would be isolated subsegmental PEs and not more proximal or, you know, quote unquote, clinically significant ones. And it turns out that only about a third of the PEs that we might not have picked up had the year's criteria been applied fell into that subsegmental category. So on the one hand, I, I think that it's important for us as emergency physicians to diagnose the PEs that are going to cause patients problems in the future. On the other hand, I, I think that we need to be cognizant of entities like CTEF and post-PE syndrome and recognize that 
those are clinically significant PEs, even if they don't cause acute uh, acute effects. Sure. Okay, great. So I'll give you a scenario. So you're working in the ED, you see somebody who was just in the hospital, discharged two days ago, history of COPD, history of CHF. They have three pound weight gain, increased uh, bilateral lower extremity edema, and they're tachycardic, and you would give them a Wells score of three. So you send a D-dimer and it's red, but it's less than a thousand. Are you like now, are you imaging that patient or are you going to not? So I think the first question that you'd have to ask yourself in that scenario is, did you need to send the D-dimer in the first place? Uh, okay. It's, uh, that's to me, sounds like a CHF patient uh, with their weight gain and their bilateral leg edema. And if I get back an x-ray that looks wet and a BNP that's through the roof, um, and they tell me that they've, you know, been eating, uh, tons and tons of salt for the last three days, then I don't know that I would necessarily have worked that patient up for PE at all. But assuming that we did, uh, the question I think is going to be, is this a patient who is in the prime time for a year's criteria based rule out? And I I'd say probably, um, you could debate this based on whether or not the lower extremity edema being bilateral would count as a sign or symptoms of PE, or rather of DVT. Um, but I think that, you know, given that the patient's probability of PE is low and CHF is a more likely diagnosis, then yeah, I think I'd be comfortable using a higher cutoff for the D-dimer in that patient. Yeah. And, and I think I'm also trying to get at a little bit the difference between the research and the evidence and then standard, standard practice or standard of care. Um, and if you're, if you're relying on your literature or more, if, if this has become standard of care in your shop or not. So I, I'll tell you that I personally do use pretest probability adjustment in my interpretation of the D-dimer. Um, I've been doing that even before this study. Um, but of course this is my particular area of interest and I I think that what I do may not reflect what everyone else does or necessarily should do. Um, but if I have a patient who I look at and I say, their probability of PE is very low, the D-dimer is somewhat higher than the positive threshold, and their risk of imaging is not minimal. So for example, you know, maybe it's a young woman and, or maybe it's a pregnant woman, or maybe it's someone with borderline renal function then I will sometimes look at that and say, you know what, I think the risk benefit for this particular patient favors not pursuing the CT scan and I'm gonna use that D-dimer as negative. I think that you can do that pretest probability adjustment and I think that there's enough science now to back that up. Um, that said, I do not think that I would say that in my shop or across the country that that is now meeting uh, the standard of care. I don't think it's been been commonly applied or tested quite enough to make it that. Sure. Do you think we'll see even higher D-dimer cutoff numbers in the future, like an age-adjusted years D-dimer? We may, uh, although I think that it's more likely what we'll see is a refinement of what the positive number should be. So as, as you were getting at before, that number of a thousand was uh, picked a bit arbitrarily. And we may find that we can come up with a more precise number for a given patient based on their pretest probability. In fact, there's some interesting research that's coming out 
now that looks at the combined risk of PE based on a patient's comorbid conditions and their presentation, along with the risk of a positive D-dimer. So for example, patients with certain diseases like cancer or rheumatologic disease are at risk for PE, but their risk of a positive D-dimer may be even higher than the risk of a PE. And so we, we may need to weigh those things and how we think about the D-dimer and what the positive cutoff should be and whether that should be tailored specifically to an individual patient and their risks. Yeah, that'd be really interesting to see patients who have some kind of inflammatory condition and we know that they're going to have an elevated D-dimer, that they have an individualized D-dimer threshold. That'd be uh, pretty interesting. Exactly. Okay, great. Uh, and w- would you mind just saying like, what's the two sentence take home from this study for you? Patients with low pretest probability of PE, whether it's determined by the year's criteria or the clinical gestalt, can safely be ruled out for PE with a D-dimer that is negative based on a higher than standard threshold. Okay, awesome. Um, Well, thanks for being on the podcast and talking to us today about your study. Really interesting work. Thanks again for having me. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. Find the full text of this article on our blog at brownemblog.com. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes. Look for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.